0: when you're trying to discover frontier sciences, you have to drive out to the edge of what's known. And the problem is you run the risk of ending up at the crazy next door neighbor of fringe science. And so there there is a lot of risk in, um, you know, operating out at the fringes of the edge of what is known. But at some point you have to say, okay, we have these tools that allow us to look out and see what's happening and, and what was What was Galileo's famous last words, right? E pur si mueve. The shit still moves. You can say what you want, but I've got the tools here to look at this. E pur si mueve. The shit still moves. It's still moving. So I think that's kind of where we are
1: now with a lot of the the woo-woo science. How do you guys define woo? Like where is the line uh, when you're talking about the fringes of science? Where does science end and woo start? Where do you draw the line on what's woo? And then what do you do with woo when you come across it?
2: My way of distinguishing woo from science is prove it. Where's your fact? Where's where have, have you done any trial and error? Have you done any scientific method at all? So for me, the book The Secret is woo.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think Arthur Clark has the second law of 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 science, which is you know uh, Clark's second law. I think says that any science that is insufficiently understood may as well be magic. Uh, the important thing is to keep open minds and to be, um, you know, not shout somebody down and just say, oh, that's bullshit, that's ridiculous. I've seen enough weird things, in fact, that was my nickname when I was working in the Pentagon, they called me Dr. Weird Science. I've seen enough fascinating and, and weird things and I'm, I'm open to the creative potential of the universe enough to say, well, you know, what, what's woo right now may not be woo tomorrow. tomorrow.
1: Infants on Thrones, philosophies of men mingled with humans, we are the core. After has let you down. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode 549, Dr. Weird Science and the Wonderful World of Woo. Get it? Instead of wonder, wounder? Wound? Wound? Come on. It's better than the Oneeters. Okay, maybe not. So anyway, a few weeks ago, we released episode 536, which I titled Chelsea Shields and the Biology of Connection. At the end of that episode, I started talking about things like... Rupert Sheldrake's Morphic Resonance, which we kind of smacked down on his band TED Talk several episodes ago, back in, I don't know, February or January of 2018. I also talked about quantum field theory, and I speculated on some of the what-ifs of a biological internet of all things being a kind of intelligent power source in the quantum realm that we are all plugged into and actually built from. And that was totally independent of the movie Ant-Man and the Wasp, spoiler alert, or anything that I expect to see in Avengers 4, but I digress in my nerdiness. A few days after publishing that episode, the Chelsea episode, I got the following email from a listener named Dave Sontag, who you just heard in that wonderful intro, right? You didn't think I was just going to let that go, did you? So here's what Dave wrote. Dave said, Glenn, I enjoyed your recent conversation with Chelsea. I haven't heard your take on Sheldrake and Morphic Resonance. I'll have to track that down. I'd love to chat with you and Chelsea. I just finished Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, as well. We may have corresponded when I was working for the Air Force in Tokyo from 2006 to 2011 as we overlapped during our time there. I think my bishop may have been your mission president. There are at least two. Two mutual areas of interest that my team researched and funded. The first was quantum biology, and the second was sociocultural modeling and prediction. Prior to my assignment in Tokyo, I was a senior biomedical tech advisor in the Pentagon, where my nickname was Dr. Weird Science. It was while working there that I met P.W. Singer, who interviewed me for one of his books, mostly about singularity-related issues. I also supported a workshop at Google on quantum biology. There are some definite mechanisms for the quantum underground internet of everything that you touched on at the end of your last podcast. Check out this article, Down the Rabbit Hole, in Discover Magazine. There's also good evidence for inheritance of acquired characteristics in terms of inherited trauma that we could discuss. Happy to yak with you via Zoom or Skype. Yours truly Dave. So that's what you're going to hear today. You're going to hear that very yak. No, that's that's not a yak. That's a brontosaurus whale. No, I, I don't. I don't know how they knew what brontosaurus sound like. It's just a sound effect in GarageBand. And that was a cow. But today you're going to hear the conversation between myself and Chelsea and the Pentagon's very own former Dr. Weird Science himself, Dave Sontag. And hopefully this will be the first of several conversations that we have together, as Dave will be joining us to review the book Social by Matthew D. Lieberman on Sunday, December 2nd at 10 p.m. Eastern. Now that live recording will be available to Patreon supporters if you want to sit in. So if you haven't joined Patreon yet... Why don't you come on over and join Patreon, where for as little as $1 per episode, you can support Infants on Thrones. You can cap that at whatever monthly limit you choose to set. Now, I would hope that this podcast is at least as valuable to you as the cost of a cup of coffee per month, or a beer, or a meal at lunch. You know, I mean, you know your budget better than I do. I'm just saying that I have it on pretty good authority that starting in January 2019, there's going to be some changes on Infants on Thrones. There will probably be anywhere from six to ten episodes a month published only on Patreon, and only about two or three a month published outside of Patreon.
3: How dare you?
1: Yep, we're making that move, and I'll talk more about why at the end of today's episode, but for now, get ready for a fun wild ride, because Dr. Weird Science is in the house! Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, I told you I was going to let it go. So Dave, tell us a little bit about your background, because um, you were doing some fascinating stuff when you were living in Tokyo.
0: Yeah, I was. And, um, you know, like I said in my intro email, our bishop there, I think, was your former mission president in Nagoya. Were you in the Nagoya no, mission?
1: No, no, I, w- I was in the Okayama mission, and my president was Utagawa.
0: Oh, okay. Different guy. Okay. Very good. Um, Yeah, so I lived in Tokyo uh, between 2006 and 2011. Uh, That was the next to last assignment I had for the Air Force active duty as a biomedical scientist. And um, I was there, uh, I was the deputy director of the office there for Asian Office of Research and Development, basically running grants for the Air Force. I traveled all over Asia never wore a uniform. I only wore a uniform, maybe one or two days a year when I would go back to DC mm-hmm. to report on our investments. And, um, the specific charge we had was just to look at blue sky, basic research, no military, uh, applications, just, you know, uh, curiosity driven type of research. So I had a nice travel budget. Uh, we had the standard expat package. So we were there with our, th- uh, three kids, attending the international school and, and you've lived there. So you know what that, that yeah. all involves that that's, that's more than a person's salary generally just to live there. So if yes. you get a gig like that, it's a great one. Yeah. And, uh, I, I usually got in trouble because I never spent my entire travel budget every year, which was usually 35 or $40,000. So, you know, got to, got to travel around, meet really interesting scientists doing cutting edge stuff, um, a lot of it started out initially in the, in the nanotech, biotech world. That's my background. Uh, and previous to that, I had spent four years in the D.C. area as a senior technology advisor, um, kind of on the Intel side of things, looking at, at long-term science and technology trends. So trying to understand and predict where different countries were investing strategically Mm-hmm. Uh, and and essentially giving advice to some of the under secretaries of defense, mostly on the health sciences side, to in essence avoid technology surprise. So, those two assignments back to back.
1: You were really, you were an advisor on the movie. What was it? Men men and with goats or something. My name is Bob Wilton. I'm a journalist. i would heard that the U.S. government was training psychic soldiers. So what you're saying is that you were a a psychic spy. A Jedi warrior. The men who stare at goats. Men with goats or something that... uh...
0: (laughs) No, but I, I worked at the Armed Forces Medical Intelligence Center. So if you read Annie Jacobson's book, Phenomena, she talks about a lot of the early... Uh, Intel-funded and defense-funded research on psychoenergetic or woo-woo type stuff. So, you know, when I, I think when you and Chelsea were talking about a lot of the social evolution stuff, I found that really interesting. But you know, then you also mentioned some of the other stuff you had had done um, in talking about Rupert Sheldrake, Sheldrake's morphogenetic fields and. Right woo stuff that I, I guess Randy has slammed you on or given you crap over. <laughs> nah, I'm, a, I'm determined to take a different uh, demeanor. Really? Oh, <laughs> uh, what a dumbass. Second. It's bullshit. I'm, I'm such a dogmatic empiricist materialist. <laughs> bullshit! He's putting the cart before the horse. So he's just doing a God of the Gaps thing. Straw man. That's gross. Woo-woo stuff that I, I guess Randy has slammed you on or given you crap over. <laughs> Randy, among others. Yeah. <laughs> so looking at technology trends and investments, um, it was really interesting because up until 2009, the term quantum biology, you could not legitimately use those to, in the same phrase. A, a physicist of, of Randy's uh, personality would say, what the hell are you talking about? Those two words don't belong together. Quantum and biology, no. No but we started seeing a lot of evidence from new nanotech-based tools um, primarily of plants how they do photosynthesis that really started making people question and then in 2009 um, a guy at google organized a workshop on quantum biology and brought people together and at the start of the workshop he said uh you know why why are we looking at this people ask us why are we looking at this and our, our answer is if nature has figured out how to do quantum over the, you know, three and a half billion years of evolutionary R&D, we want to try and understand that. So um, Google, Microsoft, Apple, all the big companies uh, at the national level, we were seeing huge investments in Japan, Korea and Singapore uh, in the nanotech. And there was a lot of related research in understanding quantum physics. And, and you know, does that actually happen in living systems and so i would say since 2007 uh 2009 people have actually started taking quantum biology as a discipline seriously Uh, there is acknowledgement now that we can measure quantum phenomena in living systems and um you know so to back up to your comment on men who stare at goats
1: that's what it was
0: yeah yeah men who stare at goats Uh, remote technical viewing, a lot of the early work that was sponsored by the Department of Defense, and it was primarily the CIA. Uh, they really didn't have a lot of medical expertise, and so they kind of fielded some of the, uh, technical review of those programs. Uh, Stanford Research Institute was the main, um, group that did a lot of the research, and Uri Geller and all those folks. You can, Annie Jacobson's book is probably the best place to go to look at all the history of that Uh, was something there is something there Um, edgar mitchell was one of the apollo astronauts and he ran some uh unauthorized psi related experiments from uh he was i think the command in the command module of the apollo uh, orbiting the moon while the others were you know going down doing the lunar module thing and he was doing some psi-based experiments with with people back on the earth, trying to send you know spooky action at a distance kind of signals. And he founded um, an organization called IONS, Institute of Noetic Sciences, I think, is what it stands for. And Dean Radin is the guy who has headed up a lot of the R and D that they've done there. Um, I think Radin's got some books of his own, one called Real Magic, where he summarizes. A lot of the science related to woo-woo type stuff. And and Raden will tell you that um, statistically speaking, you know, from a six sigma perspective, we can measure very significant, but they're very subtle, um, non-random types of, of psychic phenomena or psychoenergetic phenomena.
1: Mm-hmm. So I wanted to, to, uh, to ask Chelsea when you were talking about how in 2009, you couldn't say quantum biology. Um, I'm, I'm curious Chelsea with, with your background and studying biological anthropology, did you run into that kind of attitude? Did did you have any experience looking at the quantum side of biological evolution at all?
2: I didn't. And it, and I would love to hear what you and Dave both have to say about this because I was still fighting pretty basic battles in anthropology. Um, I was the first person to ever do the cultural side and the biological side. Yeah, Usually they are very disparate. In fact, at Duke, it might have changed in the last couple of years, but the the programs won't even talk to each other. At Harvard, mm-hmm. they're separate. At you know Chicago, it was one of the first to combine the the social scientists into a human, you know, into a social science kind of program. Talcott Parsons tried to do that in the 70s. People have tried really hard to combine biology and culture in the academic sciences. And it's been fought. Even in 2009, when I was at BU, I took a sociology class of gender and just tried to bring up pretty basic research on like Reese's monkeys and how if you give them a flower sack, that the females will cradle the flower sack and the men will throw it at each other Hmm. and 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 talking about some basic evolutionary uh gender drivers and i got like yelled out of the classroom so yeah you know i'm still trying to fight like these basic battles of if we're studying the body we have to study culture and biology because that's in the real world and so we weren't even we're not even close to quantum biology in the in sociology and anthropology people don't realize we're still fighting these nature nurture battles and we're getting there my generation is like that's so stupid of course you have to know both yeah. so we're getting to more of the bioculture we're getting to the more interdisciplinary transdisciplinary um but no i was fighting pretty uh, primary battles and i still do
0: yeah, that's really interesting because I think I got to Tokyo in 2006. And like I said, um, you know, initially I was funding and throughout the whole time I was there, I funded a lot of work on the, the harder science, the nanotech, the biotech side of things. But about two or three years in, my boss comes to me and, and it was interesting because he was a flight surgeon himself. And he said, uh, we need for you to shift your portfolio more towards this new area of investment in understanding social cultural modeling and prediction. And I was like, what? I'm a, I'm a biologist. I'm not, I'm not one of those squishy sociology type people or an anthropology people. And, and what he said is, well, the way this discipline is evolving right now, it's kind of like a merge between computer science and, and a lot of those other, um, you know, sociology and anthropological type sciences. But he says, Here's where you and I, as preventive medicine people, already have a pretty good understanding, and that is the mathematics. When you're trying to understand and predict collective behavior of a group, we use a lot of the same math to try and understand health and well-being and disease processes, and you know, understanding um, how to manage the health of an organization like the Department of Defense. And he was right as I got into it and started attending meetings and talking to, um, you know, the researchers, they would throw up these network diagrams and, it, and they would be for things like a sexually transmitted disease network or, a, a, a meme network or something, you know, how diseases or how ideas spread through a population. And my background was more on the, um, Bioinformatics side of thing, but I would look at these networks and go, geez, that looks just like a proteome network, a protein network, or that looks like some of the, the genetic regulatory networks. And I became really fascinated that, that with this idea that does nature use these same sorts of underlying mathematical and biophysical principles to, to you know, from the, from the atomic scale up to the social scale? And I think as one of the big takeaways from the, the broad investments I made over that five-year peri- five period, I think the answer is clearly yes. The, the math is, is very much the same. And so when you get people into these, these merging disciplines, you have to come up with common tool sets and language. And number one, you have to have the respect to, to not shout each other down. You know, and so I would say in the area of quantum biology, um, I I did my PhD. The Air Force gave me a very short time frame to work on um, trying to understand how chromium causes cancer. I jokingly tell people that my PhD thesis I was like kind of like Aaron Brockovich, but without the cleavage. But now that I'm <laughs> now that I'm twenty or thirty years older, I think you I get the know, cleavage. I, yeah, I've got the man boot. No, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so as I was as I was looking at how chromium damages DNA, the mutations were clearly non-random. And what what caused me the most heartache with my committee was they were coming from the idea of the standard dogma of biology that all mutations are random, all evolutionary pressure is just a result of random mutations haphazardly occurring and then selecting for those and so when i started saying no these mutations are occurring at specific arrangements of base pairs and here's the reasons why they they said well you need a mathematical model to prove that this is not just a random fluke right and (laughs) the, the aha moment came when the sciences around this started advancing and suddenly this word bioinformatics came into common use and suddenly one day in a committee meeting one of my committee members said wait is this is this what we're doing is this thing bioinformatics i was like yeah it is and and at that point you know it was if you remember from the old kung fu television show that was the moment where i had snatched the pebble snatched from the, the master. <laughs> yeah, I snatched the pebble from the master's hand and they they greenlighted the rest of my dissertation. So um but the thing about the non-random mutations, there was a uh there were a number of other researchers that were starting to see these and in bacteria, bacteria can actually drive mutations that they need to metabolize new food sources. And that was a really wild idea. Uh, John Joe McFadden wrote a pretty um, accessible book. I think it's just called quantum evolution talking about um, some of the early evidence for this. And gosh, that was probably a good maybe 10 years before the Google um, workshop on quantum biology. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, headway still to be made, There was a scientist named Herb Froelich in the 1960s who came up with this notion that biological proteins might be able to vibrate coherently in lockstep, which is essentially what a laser does, right? When you look at laser light, it's vibrating coherently. Herb Froelich said he thought that biological proteins might be able to vibrate or oscillate in the same way. And uh, that idea of a Froelich condensate has been around in the literature for a long time, but it's only in the last three years that the technology has advanced to where these things have actually been measured and observed in the wild. And, you know, I think Froelich died a while ago, but uh, his, his work has been held up and, and now we have a lot of really fascinating new tools and technologies that are revealing some fundamental secrets uh, that go all the way to hard questions like, you know, where where does consciousness arise? When we give somebody a general anesthetic and they lose their consciousness, what's actually happening? We've been using general anesthetics since right after the Civil War, right? So 1860s, but nobody has really understood the mechanisms of what happens that actually knocks a person out. And our best understanding now is that um, we're essentially slowing down some of the biological proteins in, in key parts of the cell where some of the information processing that happens that gives rise to consciousness.
1: Now, now um, you sent me a bunch of links and I'm just kind of, kind of like trying to to process everything that you're even saying to me right now, David. It's just like I'm just like buried in all this interesting stuff swimming through it trying to to understand it um, one of the one of the things that you sent me was uh, an article for Discover magazine. It was about Stuart Hammeroff, who's an anesthesiologist down at the University of Arizona in Tucson, and he's done a lot of research uh, with Roger Penrose on some of these questions um here oh wait h- hang on a second g- 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 come come off mute chelsea yeah. <laughs> I just think
2: about what he was just talking about with frolic and the oscillations what did you call that again
0: frolic condensate
2: condensate so yeah
0: what- and and frolic is is frolic is like german for happy frolic
2: that's awesome. Why I, why I think that's important is am I'm, that's a lot of things I'm dealing with in my field as well. So my advisor and a lot of the research I did in the biological anthropology was placebo studies. So much like what Dave's doing, I work with all these medical doctors and placebo researchers to try to figure out what is actually happening neurobiologically in the body when the trigger is just a sugar pill. So there is no active medication. The trigger is the context or the social re- relationship or the way we set up the interactions between doctor and patient or the way we we talk about the pill if we tell them that the pill is known to cause side effects like ulcers we can actually put a camera in the stomach and watch the ulcer start to grow by giving them a sugar pill so All of that stuff, the reason why I find it so fascinating and I'm so excited about it is 10 years ago, we didn't have the measurements. We couldn't measure it. We knew that placebos worked and we knew in drug trials, we wanted to get rid of the placebos. And so that's where all placebo research money went was how because it's it's all it's a business right how do we get our drugs through fda trials faster it's beat placebos better and so all placebo money for in like from the 70s to like the 90s or later was how do we get rid of these damn you know, nuisance placebos. And we're just now getting to research of actually, this is pretty phenomenal that our is able to make these chemical substrates that are able to turn off our consciousness or able to reduce, you know, certain cancers and cause ulcers and, you know, repair ligaments just with your brain. And so we're starting to actually study these things. And yet we still can't measure a lot of the stuff that I do. And what I talk about in the field, more of that social stuff, the complexity of the context, we can measure if I get rid of all the, the variables, but one, then I could try to measure what effect that has. But what do you do when you put someone in a ritual healing situation where the the room and the food and the sounds and the personal relationships and the and now we're compounding every one of those effects, and we just don't have the tools I need to measure that and prove it. And so what's happening is I'm coming to a place talking about this word entrainment. There's a lot of great research on entrainment that in a social group within 30 seconds, if we're listening to the same drum beats, let's say, or listening to certain types of music, our bodies will start to oscillate at the same pitch, the same level. And it does uh, Trigger some oxytocin, which is a bonding chemical, so you kind of feel closer to the people around you, and it does trigger a bunch of other uh, neurobiological chemicals that, that give you a sense of well being when you're oscillating at the same frequency as people around you. Now, that's about the degree of science we have to talk about entrainment. We don't have this Schrödinger condensate. We don't know the quantum biology. I this is the first time I'm hearing about it, and yet, how fascinating is it that? So many of these fields are struggling and diving in to the same problems, trying to measure the same things. And yet we don't always talk to each other. We don't know what they're doing over here in in the army. And they don't know what we're doing over here in in African, you know, <laughs> placebo medicine. And yeah. and I don't know what they're doing over there at Stanford in their humane technology lab. And I think that, right. you know, it's just something, I don't have a solution to the problem, but it is something that I find fascinating. And you brought this up, Glenn, actually. And I disagree, but there's part of me that's like, maybe maybe there's something to it. This idea of independent uh, mental stimulation on different parts of the globe, but we're all approaching the same problems. And we have seen that over time. And we're all approaching it differently. And I think it's, it's just a fascinating phenomenon. And I think the more people like us that are able to talk and collaborate the better we are going to be at solving these problems and coming up with the measurement tools to literally be able to talk about effects and people will listen. Cause right now when I talk about the effect of your social life on your health, people are like, yeah, 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 yeah. No. Science is telling us it's worse for your health than obesity.
0: How yeah. let, me, let, let me, let yeah. me plug Lieberman's book again, because I'm up to about chapter seven in it. And thank you, Chelsea, for bringing that up in the last podcast, because um, Lieberman does a really fabulous job. Of, this is oh, the book social. Yeah. The book social. Mm-hmm. And I'm only up to about chapter seven, but he talks early on about social pain and a lot of the um, measurement tools that we have now, when you measure social pain, you can actually measure in the brain that the pain response is is comparable to a physical injury. And they've even gone to the point of of giving people non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like acetaminophen or ibuprofen. And those seem to be actually able to relieve social pain. So if you've been rejected or jilted or or Glenn, you've gotten a bad rating on a podcast or Randy's giving you some shit. <laughs> well, you know, go take some ibuprofen and maybe you won't be so unhappy, but back it to rips idea. up my stomach, Dave. Oh yeah. It gives okay. me duodenitis. I, I have <laughs> to stay <in> <laughs> um, Back to this idea of entrainment. Um, we are literally swimming in so much data from the quantified self movement. I think it's, we're only going to find more really fascinating things. I'm thinking about like the Fitbit and the Apple smartwatch. Um, one of the guys I met while I was in Tokyo was Bob Reese, who uh, has been on their advisory board. And Bob is a, is a sweetheart of a guy. He's been on the dialogue advisory board forever. Very progressive Mormon, uh, literature professor. And what the heart math people have been doing has been looking at the science related to the heart. And when you measure a heartbeat you don't want your heart to be ticking regularly like a metronome. In fact, if your heart is beating, you know, regularly like a metronome, it means you're actually pretty sick. The adaptive uh, healthy heart, if you measure the beat to beat variability, there's a measure called heart rate variability, HRV. And um, one of the most fascinating things about entrainment is, they can show changes in heart rate variability related to things like group singing or bonding between uh, couples or even a boy and his dog to where when these people are coming together and they're doing something that's loving or empathic that there's a connection, they actually synchronize in their heart rate variability patterns. So there is, in fact, some entrainment that's going on. And, and and that really kind of starts freaking people out because there's no physical contact. And then you start getting into questions of, well, well how is this happening? So talking about de- developing new tools and so forth, DARPA has a, a new program they created a couple of years ago called Radio Bio. And the question there is, does nature use um, electromagnetic signaling for biological processes? And it seems like a kind of a silly question because we are electrical beings. Uh, We've known in the the search and and, uh, recovery business that you can detect a human heartbeat just from the electrical signal from a standoff distance of about, you know, 30 feet plus. So we are all sending out complex electromagnetic signals. The question is, are are we receiving those as well and, and and i think the answer is is starting to suggest yeah maybe probably i think we've all had uncanny exper- experiences of uh, presentiment or uh, a shared dream um I've had that a few times, you know, where I wake up next to my wife and say, I just had the strangest dream. And she starts to say, yeah, me too. And she'll tell me her, her dream. And I finish telling the end of it. It's like, yeah, I had the same dream. So, yeah.
1: well, you know, uh, boy, there, there's so many things I've been thinking of as I've been listening to, to both of you talk. Um, w- one is you, you, you said something Dave, like there's no physical contact and yet, there's, there's still something that's going on. Um, yeah. You, you and about that's the, things that are going the, out there. Uh-huh. And, 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 you know, there was that, that clip that I included at the end of the conversation I did with, with Chelsea, that was the theoretical physicist, David Tong talking about the quantum field theory and that according to that, you know, the, the, there might not be physical contact and what we would typically think of as physical contact. But if what he's saying is right at, that, there's these, liquid fluid fields of, of energy and other things that we are an expression of that, that you can't find unless you go like deep, deep, deep into each cell, into each atom, into that quantum realm that all of that is connected, then yeah. like, they're really, it, it's, it's not, just, you know, like we would think of, um, you know, social interactions where you're mirroring somebody else, but there's this distance. There really is like an actual connection at this really, really deep level yeah. And that, I mean, the implications of that are, are yeah. mind blowing.
0: And, and I don't think you even necessarily need to go to quantum entanglement or spooky action at a distance for some of these sorts of energetic, um, energetic exchanges. Right. Sure. Um, we are energetic beings, the fact that we're living organisms in violation of the second law of thermodynamics, right? You know, that's increasing entropy. Well, our, our living systems are characterized by two things. We exist far from equilibrium, right? So the second law of thermodynamics, it says entropy increases. From a physicist's perspective, that's for a closed system and that's for a system that's at equilibrium. Well, we're like a fire. We are as far from equilibrium as we can get. And we're a dissipative system. So we're constantly taking on new energy. And and that's how we live. When you're at equilibrium, you're at the same temperature as the slab that you're on. And you're dead. And you're no longer a living thing. And so, again, these come back to really fundamental questions that Erwin um, Schrödinger in the 1930s, right, one of the the grandfathers of modern day physics wrote a, a short little book called what is life at the time they didn't even understand you know how genetic information was passed on and he kind of speculated and said well it's probably an aperiodic crystal or something and and that was really spot on that was exactly what dna turned out to be uh you know when an aperiodic when... crystal is what dna is
1: yeah what is that yeah. i don't know what that means an from, aperiodic from crystal a from a
0: From a physical perspective it 's just you know uh, when Rosalind Franklin did some of the first x ray crystallography and, and uh, Watson and Crick kind of got the limelight for discovering DNA, but they based a lot of their work on on her x ray crystallography they had Rosalind Franklin had taken the actual DNA material and crystallized it, so all of the early studies of protein required large amounts of, of a protein or biological substance to be crystallized and then they would shoot x-rays through it and measure the diffraction pattern. So I don't want to get hung up in the description. The The, the point is um, when we're talking about informational processes and, and how we're built um, there's a lot of really fascinating physics. Um, I don't think we need to go to quantum processes at all. The the reason I got really excited with chapter seven in Lieberman's book on social is he says, you know, when you're combining the mentalizing processes and the mirroring system to try and get at things like social empathy, what the region of the brain that I would bet my money on Is the septal nucleus. Now, that's right in the center of the brain. That's by the hippocampus. And the reason I got excited about that was because uh, a couple of things. We were funding work in what we call natural sensory systems. We're trying to understand how living systems can do things that we at least didn't think humans could do like sensing magnetic fields, right? So we've known for a long time that birds and bees and other organisms can navigate based on the earth's magnetic field. Well, if you're trying to build an autonomous system, that seems like just a pretty cool thing to try and understand. It's like, well, nature figured out how to do this. Can we, is that something we can incorporate? So uh, studying magnetobiology, how organisms detect magnetic fields and respond to them was one area that, that we were investing in. And this, again, comes back to what Chelsea was talking about, about getting people from complementary disciplines in the same room to even just start talking to each other and go, oh, that's interesting. So what I found when I would go into a new lab, one of the questions I would always ask is, what's your hard problem? You know, what's what's your biggest challenge? And very often, they would say something and I would say, well, did you know somebody over in the sociology department or over in the physics department, even across your own campus, sometimes I actually had this happen where it was at the same university. They didn't even know that the solution to their hard problem was another researcher at their own university. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so we were funding the magnetic sensing work and, um, Two of the the principal researchers in that area, and and they're getting work right now, uh, funding from DARPA in this radio bio program, is a guy named Joe Kirschvink at Caltech, and his wife is uh, Atsuko Kobayashi, uh, lives in Japan, and they they've actually created their entire career over the last thirty years with a, a bicontinental marriage. They raised two kids, but she's a, a electron microscopist, so she has analyzed tissues. From just about every living organism you can see. And one of the things that they keep finding over and over again are little nanocrystals of iron called magnetite. And they find it in a very specific part of the brain. And so uh, one of the other people I was funding uh, was at the Korean Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, it's their big national institute. And specifically, this was the guy running their. Uh, fMRI center, their, their magnetic resonance imaging. And he was boasting saying, oh yeah, we have the world's biggest magnet, fMRI magnet. And my question to him was, okay, what, what does that mean? What can you do with the, a bigger magnet? And he says, well, we can specifically image parts of the brain that have been hard to image previously. I said, okay, like, like what part of the brain? And he says, oh, the entorhinal cortex. And I said, oh, my goodness. I said, I just talked to these guys who've been funding magneti- magneto sensing research, and they see a lot of nanoparticles of iron in that region. And he got really interested. He said, oh, well, that would explain why we need a bigger magnet to, you know, excite that tissue enough to be able to image it. You know, everybody who, who's ever had an MRI knows they get very concerned about anything metal, you know, because that. Can interfere with or, or make harder to image. So um, <clears throat> so what does that mean? That, that part of the brain is very close to the uh, septal nucleus that Lieberman talks about being very critical for empathy. That's also a part of the brain where uh, I think in 2015 or 2016, the Nobel Prize was given in medicine for the discovery of something called grid cells. And grid cells are used for creating our mental maps of of the space around us and so the the afferents and the efferents those are the nerves coming in and going out of that region are going to be very important I think to something like the mirror system and mentalizing uh going into our language centers this is the part of the brain that 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 goes first when dementia happens, you know, so if you've ever dealt with a loved one who's had Alzheimer's, they misplaced their keys. And if they're a Mormon, they, they might pray to God and God will help them find their keys or not. Yeah. Um, But, but when dementia happens, the, that part of the brain around the hippocampus um, starts to go first. And so I I think Lieberman is spot on that. This is really going to be a key part of the brain for us to understand how we make sense of the world, the the mentalizing, that's the how or, or that's the why of something. So if you see somebody drinking uh, a glass of scotch at eight in the morning, you go, why is that person doing that? We're trying to, to make sense, right? The mirroring is the, the, the mirror neurons are just how we break down in our visual systems what is actually happening and the how of what's actually happening. The empathy part then is, is how that all gets integrated and how we can try and, um, interact socially with others. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying that if, if we have other sensory systems and, and there is evidence now for, um, humans may have at one point evolutionarily had a magnetic sense of direction. That's, uh, part of, uh, Kirschvink's work under the DARPA project, he's actually been able to demonstrate that humans do have a weak sense of of, uh, being able to detect the Earth's magnetic field. There have also been some uh, image-based studies, satellite-based studies of cattle. Grazing cattle and grazing deer seem to orient themselves to the north and south when they're eating. And uh, the other one I've seen is supposedly dogs when you know how they spin around before they, they drop a load. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> apparently, statistically, they end up facing north uh, more often than they do another direction. So the point in all that is we may, as humans, have sensory systems beyond the five normal senses that we all, you know, were taught as kids that, that allow us to interact in our environment that, that have or have not been under evolutionary pressure. And they're, for instance, with the magnetic sensing, people say, well, why don't we have that anymore? Well, we haven't had any evolutionary need to do that for a long time. And so when whenever something like that happens, very often you'll, you'll see evolutionary drift where we'll lose that capability or it just kind of goes into a, a recession. You know, yeah, a recession, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I saw a documentary um, within the last two months, um, and, and I'll have to look it up and I'll maybe add some clips in post-production, but the, the, this guy was talking about the quantum robin and I think you're referencing that, that it, it, it actually uses the Earth's magnetic fields as a way of navigating. And, it, it, and I, I don't remember how he connected it
3: to, like, quantum impulses. This is the European robin. Every year, she migrates from northern Europe to the tip of Spain and back. In this laboratory in the woods, biologist Henrik Muritsen is trying to solve the mystery of how she does it. Henrik has found an intriguing clue inside her cells. In recent years, extremely delicate experiments have shown that subatomic particles really are entangled. It means they can subtly and instantaneously influence each other across space. It seems the same thing is going on inside the robin's eye. When a photon enters the robin's eye, it creates what's called an entangled pair of electrons. Here's how it works. Each electron has two possible states. For simplicity, I'm choosing to call them red and green. Now, here's the weird thing. Until I measure it, it's neither one nor the other, but both at the same time. In quantum entanglement, the electrons are mysteriously linked. For example, if I get red on the first, I always get red on the second. It's not a game of chance anymore. It's as if the first electron is telling the second one what to do. The electrons seem to know that they should both have the same colour, no matter how far apart they are. Tiny variations in the Earth's magnetic field change the way electrons in the robin's eye are entangled. And that's just enough to trigger her compass.
1: And I I don't remember how he connected it to, uh, like, quantum impulses, but then he, he also gave an example of uh the the human ability to smell and that the the, the way that we're able to distinguish smells from each other is been looked at as, as like a lock and key mechanism. The shape of the molecules are associated with certain qualia you know, that, that we have in our head. So we get the shape of the molecule, we, it goes into our nose, and then it sends these electronic signals that tells us, okay, that is an apple or that, you know, whatever it is that you're smelling. But there are certain things like almonds and cyanide that smell identical to to humans, but the molecular structure is very different. So it, it violates that lock and key rule and what they, they did some experiments with fruit flies and, and I, I had to go back and watch it again to see exactly how they did it. But the indication from the experiments was that the information that is, is telling you what something smells like might be coming from deeper within the molecules than just the shape of the molecules itself, and so they were suggesting that that was information from the quantum realm that we're actually more sensitive to, but we don't really know. We haven't been able to really investigate it, but that that we could be responding to stimuli that's coming from deep, deep, deep within ourselves from a subatomic level.
3: Our sense of smell is remarkable and quite different from our other senses of sight and hearing. Among the thousands of scents that we can recognize, many of them may well trigger very powerful memories and emotions. It's as though our sense of smell is wired directly to our inner consciousness. It's also different in another way. The other senses of sight and hearing rely on us detecting waves, light and sound. But our sense of smell involves detecting particles, chemical molecules. Recently, scientists have begun to realise that when it comes to our sense of smell, something very mysterious is going on. For decades, biologists thought they knew exactly how our noses sniffed out different chemicals. But physicists like Jenny Brooks think there could be a new ingredient in the mix. And it smells like quantum mechanics. A lot of people speak of the sense of smell and off and the science of olfaction as being a problem that's been solved and we know all about it. And we do know a lot about it. We know about the ingredients, we know about the equipment that we use to smell. But I would argue that there's um, a little bit more to understand. When our noses detect a chemical, they fire a nerve signal to our brains. But different chemicals create different sensations... The standard explanation for this is to do with the shape of the molecules. The conventional theory that goes back to the 1950s says that the scent molecule has a particular shape that allows it to fit in to the receptor molecules in our nodes. If it has the right shape, it's like a hand in a glove or a key in a lock. In fact, it's called the lock and key mechanism. With the wrong shape, it won't fit into the receptor. But with the right shape, it fits into the receptor, triggering that unique smell sensation. Different receptors are wired to different parts of our brains. So when a menthol molecule locks into its specific receptor, it triggers that minty, fresh sensation. But the lock and key theory has always had a problem. Both benzaldehyde and cyanide have the same smell. They both smell of almonds. But these molecules are both very different shapes. So the lock and key mechanism as an explanation for how we smell can't be the whole story. So why would two molecules with different shapes smell the same? Quantum biology has a head-spinning explanation. It says our noses aren't smelling chemical molecules. They're listening to them. It's not just the shape of a scent molecule that matters. Let's take a closer look at this model of a cyanide molecule. The white ball here is a hydrogen atom, and the grey sticks are the bonds that hold it together with the carbon and nitrogen. But the reality isn't as simple as that. I can give you a better sense of what's going on if we look at this larger white ball. You see, atoms don't just sit still. The bonds that hold them together are like vibrating strings. And that gives us a whole new way of thinking about smell. The bizarre new quantum theory of smell is all about vibrating bonds. Chemical molecules are playing music for our noses. Imagine a receptor molecule in my nose is like my guitar. Before it can make a sound, a scent molecule has to enter my nose. And when that scent molecule is in place, its chemical bonds provide the strings and it's ready to be played. The receptor molecules contain quantum particles, electrons. As they leap from one atom to another, they vibrate the bonds of the scent molecule like my fingers plucking a guitar string. What's remarkable about this theory is that it tells us our sense of smell is about the vibrations of molecules, or wave-like behaviour, and not so much about the shape of a particular scent molecule. Our sense of smell may be much more like our sense of hearing. A particular molecule, say that of grass, will vibrate at a particular frequency. But a different molecule, say that of mint, will vibrate at a different frequency. This would explain why cyanide smells like almonds. The two molecules have different shapes, but their chemical bonds just happen to vibrate at the same frequency. The quantum vibration in the odorant is almost literally like a particle of sound. So yeah we're saying that the process of smell could be exactly like an acoustic resonance event it could be very analogous to um hearing and seeing actually could
1: be responding to stimuli that's coming from deep 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 within ourselves from a subatomic level and it's just like maybe that's intuition you, you know the d- different kind of qualia centric um yeah data
0: and that's that that's the work of luca turin he actually gave the best talk at the uh, google workshop on quantum biology yeah i've got a link i can send you for all of those talks but his is the talk i come back to the most whenever i'm discussing quantum biology with people the entire drug industry and chelsea thank you for mentioning the placebo effect because dirty secret of the drug industry is 30 percent probably and i don't want to crap on you too much blame because i think you probably work in some related fields but not anymore most oh, okay good no. for you <laughs> most most uh pharmaceutical grade drugs only about 30 to 35 percent actually work the rest cause uh deleterious effects or off-target effects, Um, and that's horrible because the drug industry has invested billions in their blockbuster drugs, and and exactly what you said, they've built that model on the old lock and key idea that the drug is, you know, it's like a a key that fits into the lock, and it's based on a physical shape, and whenever you ask a, a pharmacologist what happens, and they just say, well, magic happens once it binds you know it's nobody understands but what turin talked about in his his uh google workshop talk is exactly what you said it's not the shape it's the shake meaning it's the the oscillation the the quantum vibration that's happening that allows charge transfer to happen it's kind of like you know how all of our new Uh, automobiles have a chip embedded in the key. So it's no longer just the physical interaction of the lock and tumbler, you know, having a physically allowing you to to turn the switch. Right. There has to be an embedded chip. And what that that chip does is it it provides like an electronic handshake to allow the charge transfer to happen. So, yeah, that's that's what uh, Turin's work. And he's been funded by DARPA for a long time. Uh, to do some of that, like you say, and the fragrance industry is very interested in, um, you know. I have
2: to jump in here because you guys, Mm -hmm. this is mind-blowing, but I want to take it even a step further. It's not, we're discovering that we might have these extra sensory abilities. We know we do. Um, I heard one of the most mind-blowing talks and I've been to how many, you know, I've been to Hundreds of TED events, um, and I just last week by David Eagleman from Stanford. He's part of the Neo Sensory Lab at Stanford, and what they are doing is they're uh, experimenting in the Umvelt, the U M W E L T, and what the Umvelt is—it's kind of a newer word. It's the idea of being able to sense how people sense and perceive information in their environments, and then kind of inculcate that information, make sense of it, and then have an output or a problem solving or have, have something done. And he And he started out his talk talking about, you know, eels send off electrical uh, sensations and that's how they communicate with the world around them. Bats are able to really have such a sensitive information about speed and air. And just by uh, the air and the torque of their flying, and I might get some of this wrong, but just, just bear with me, um, they're able to kind of sense the world around them and be able to very quickly Adjust and know what's around them. As dogs, their sense of smell is phenomenal and they can smell, you know, they're probably looking at us every day like, how do you not smell that? Like, you know, they can smell if you'd had. If you've hugged a woman today, you know, they can smell the smallest, tiniest things. And that's how they understand the world around them. And that's how they understand when you're mad at them or when you're happy at them or when they, when you want them. They're smelling your emotion, basically. Um, bees, they work through a series of chemical inputs. So what David Eagleman and his team are doing is saying, you know, humans have all these abilities. We just haven't... We, we really aren't that good at smelling. <laughs> We're not that good at even seeing. We're not even that great at hearing compared to some of these other animals. We're
0: and yet there there is some evidence, pr- pretty compelling evidence, I think, on uh, the existence of human pheromones, right?
2: Right. So that's what I'm getting at is, however we have a, what you said earlier, we have the ability. It's hard coded in our DNA. We have the ability for chemical and communication. We have the ability for pheromonal communication and we do have it pretty complex. It's just subconscious. We're just not consciously aware like we are with sight and touch and smell. We have the ability for magnetic or electrical uh, awareness. Um, but again, it might not be conscious. And so what he and his team is doing is getting the body to sense a different um, sensation with with a vest. And let me explain and I'll, I'll try to talk quickly. So he's made these vests that give haptic responses. And so you can communicate and the vest will, if I say a word, A, B, C, D, E or something, a letter, the vest will um, respond with that particular letter. A gives a specific haptic response on the upper right shoulder. I don't know if that's exactly how he does it. But you wear the vest long enough and you realize that and they've been able to put it on deaf people who cannot hear anything and say a word and the deaf person can write that word on the board just by wearing the vest. It's basically saying we're going to keep giving you this information instead of through your ears, we're going to send it through a different signal, but it's still being processed in that part of your brain that knows how to construct language. So then they said, can we do it with blind people? So they put the haptic vest on blind people and almost like you lead a woman in a dance where you barely Touch the back her back and she knows to turn right or turn left, the vest is giving these minute uh sensorial haptic uh impulses, and they were able to basically lead people who had never seen the vest and cannot see through a series of mazes um, almost perfectly. Um and now they're trying that vest, this neosensory vest, on a lot of different aspects to try to figure out: are there ways that our body is sensing the world? We're just not conscious of it, A. And B, we just need to figure out a way to to measure it or to uh, um, inculcate that sensation to trigger that part of the brain that will get it. So your brain doesn't always have to smell, touch, taste, or see. It can still acquire information about the world. And that's what's happening when we do lose a part of our brain or when we do get in an accident or look at Daredevil, that famous Daredevil show on Netflix that's what his brain is doing is using other sensory inputs to make sense of the world around him and then to respond to those through a series of trial and error. And what if we could make that even quicker or faster? And that's just like one part of the umwelt. Um, I always talk about, you know, fun, and this is the last thing I'll say, cause I know that you all want to get talking, but um,
0: I'm going to put on my Randy hat and shit on you here in a minute. (laughs) Okay,
2: do. No. One of my things I love to do just as like a funny drinking game is we go to a bar and I guess people's jobs, like around the bar, just by what they look like, the way they walk, the way they talk, the way they eat, the way they stand, what clothes they're wearing, what hair they're wearing, how they communicate and interact with people. As an anthropologist, I can't measure this stuff. I mean, someday I hope to be able to create microanalysis or be able to do rapid fire, costly signaling measurement where I could actually hard code it into a computer and we could actually have it more digitized. But right now it's just my brain and I've been in enough context with enough people and I pay attention to enough social things that I'm pretty accurate. And we all tend to laugh when I get it right. Like one time I got it right. I was like, this guy, no, he, he's, he's higher up. He's too, way too confident for what his knowledge base is. I think his dad's rich. And he's probably in real estate. And we went over and asked him later. And it was exactly that. And so I can't measure it though. I can't prove it, but I know there is something that I am able to glean instantaneously, instantaneously within three seconds of meeting someone that I can't quite measure it, but I know it's factual. And so I think that this world of the umwelt and neosensory, um, Discovery. It for me, it's the future of science, and it's the thing I'm the most excited about.
0: Yeah, and I think especially as we're adding more sensors that are coming closer and closer, you know, like just our cell phones, and, and I'm wearing a Fitbit, and who knows what other sensors people are wearing these days. Um, as that information is getting integrated, how is it getting integrated? So I, I just wanted to play the devil's advocate. I'm really not going to do a Randy on you, but I would counter that. Well, that doesn't nec- None of that necessarily has to be spooky action at a distance. None of that has to be woo woo. A lot of that just goes to the fact that uh, our brains are very plastic. Uh, I have followed some of the haptic research. The um, the Air Force is part of their human performance wing, and that was actually my sponsoring organization, actually created the whole field of, of um, you know, user interface, human machine interface, uh, human factors, understanding how people interact with machines and with technology and a lot of that work goes all the way back to World War II, you know, when we just had to fit different sized people into cockpits and they had to be able to reach the controls and see over the, the you know, the cockpit and so forth. Um, as we integrate haptics and other sensory inputs, or in the case of people who have lost or never had a particular sensory modality, um, so people who can't see, right, what happens to their visual cortex adaptively? How do things get rewired? But it is true. You can can give most people a brand new sensory capability. Uh, There was um, a uh, do-it-yourself group in San Francisco called Noisebridge that created a uh, microprocessor device called True North that was a haptic bracelet that you could wear on your leg. And it would essentially give you... There were eight little vibrating motors, and it would give you a um, directional cue. It was essentially a magnetic compass, and and people would just wear this, and they found that over time they were just naturally integrating this brand new sensory capability into their conscious, you know, day to day activities, and to the point that it became subconscious. They didn't even have to think about it they suddenly found, you know, that they had a new superpower, that they had better sense of direction, and, you know, they didn't get lost so often. So, yeah, the Umwelt is really interesting uh, with the Stanford connection. A a lot of the early work that was done there with the really woo-woo stuff, there are still some things like remote technical viewing, the sense of being stared at, um, those studies have been detailed in Annie Jacobson's books and, and Dean Radin's book um, with very high statistical significance. And those, from a skeptic's perspective, I I don't think anybody who looks at those statistics can, can deny the significance of them. If In fact, Radin makes this point in his book. He says, if this result were it done in any other psychological or sociological anthrop- anthropological paper this would get you know top billing cover story this is a super significant result it's just the problem is nobody understands how or why or and the, it, and the mechanism that it is
1: happening so wh- wh- yeah. what what is, what is it that's uh, statistically significant people being able to t- to tell when they're being stared at
0: yeah, that's that's one example. Um, the other one that really blew my mind, I heard Raden speak. Uh, you mentioned Hameroff and Penrose, and mm. that's going to be an important link because every year, uh, Stu Hameroff puts together a uh, consciousness conference. It's called The Science of Consciousness. And uh, in 2016, I heard Raden give a keynote talk where he was describing some of the um, most recent um experiments he's done and there's a a, an experiment in quantum physics called the two slit experiment right and at, at a at a very high level essentially if you measure a photon like a particle if you measure light like a particle it behaves like a particle if you measure light like a wave it behaves like a wave and that's kind of one of the head scratchers and then the other is the the two slit experiment where they fire uh, a photon through a slit, through two slits. And what he did in the study was he had a two-slit experiment set up that humans could interact with via the, the internet, you know, remotely essentially. And the the idea of the experiment was for the human observer to try and influence which direction the photon would go after it was fired. And then as one of the controls... So I think he had like 3,000 human observers of this experiment, and then the other interesting thing was he had um, just bots, you know, a computer observe the experiment. The conscious observer had an influence on the outcome of the two-slit experiment. The unconscious robot algorithm, whatever you want to call it, had no influence on the experiment no mainstream physicist would, you know, they just go, that's bullshit. There's no way, you know, that, that would be a Randy moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, there's, there's no way that can, can be true or or happen. There has to be a flaw in it, but Raiden has done experiments like these over and over again. He's met almost every objection that, you know, people like the amazing Randy (laughs) come up with. Um, and, um, point six sigma significance that's 0.00001 probability that that result is due to chance alone it's it's like infinitesimal odds that that's a random in other words there's actually something there so um you know where that leaves us as humans with extrasensory versus um additional senses that um, umwelt Whatever you know, Chelsea has mentioned integrating new senses. I don't know. I'm I'm open to uh, to new modalities, and I think that's what where we have to be
1: these days with with the science where they are. So so help help me understand because you sent me a link to to uh, I think it was Discover magazine. It was an article about Stuart Hammeroff, and he's talking about um, microtubules as you know the, the, these these parts of the cell that they do a lot of things like they pull the cells apart when or the, or the chromosomes apart during um right. when, mitosis. mitosis yes um yep. they they can be on the outside of the cell forming like the cilia, you know the all of the the it, it almost seemed like they were like the the mister delivery movers and shakers of cellular activity with the things that they yeah do. no they that's true, they really are
0: they're they're part of the skeleton of the cell. But they also transport stuff inside of the cells. So when an HIV uh, virus hits your cell, they actually get trafficked on microtubules. And there's some great uh, YouTube videos out there of animations that show these little motor proteins, and they look like they've got tennis shoes and they're walking along the microtubules. But a lot of it has to do with the um, how those microtubules are vibrating and the specific frequencies that they're vibrating at. So Hameroff was the one with Sir Roger Penrose who came up with the idea, and uh, the book that inspired Hameroff was one that Penrose wrote called The Emperor's New Mind. I think I have it on my bookshelf here, so that's probably around 1980s, something like that. And and that was where um, Penrose speculated that there might be some quantum process that's going on related to consciousness. And Hameroff said, well, I got a candidate for you here. Let's talk about the microtubule because we know that uh, certain drugs bind to the microtubules. And and Hameroff's background is actually as an anesthesiologist, right? So uh, he's known of something called the Overton-Meyer correlation. and, And that's really the basis of all anesthesiology. That goes back to the 1890s. And that was simply that a drug's ability to act as an anesthetic seemed to relate to um, its solubility in olive oil. And you could just draw a curve that would say, okay, this drug dissolves this much in olive oil. That's probably a pretty good candidate for a general anesthetic. That's, That's as much science as we have had towards understanding how drugs knock people out going all the way back to 1890. So, um, okay, so the lipid solubility was one property, which a lot of people thought that meant that the drug had to bind to the cell membrane because that's where things are kind of fatty. Um, Hamroff had his reasons for speculating as to why microtubules might be the seat of consciousness. And... um, there really was no good evidence for that, and the Discover article talks about some of the new. And it was uh, it had
1: something to do with the paramecium. Where uh, is it that a paramecium, as a single celled organism, does not have a bunch of microtubules in it that's doing all the the, the, the moving uh, around, you know, responding to to different stimuli? It's just like it it is a single single microtubule. No, no. Paramecia, paramecia do have
0: microtubules. They use microtubules. Okay. Yeah, Hameroff just likes showing that slide of two, uh, two paramecia having sex. And I've seen him use that one all the time. And he says, Yeah, paramecium has uh, microtubules and they do all these things. They eat, they, they divide, they move around, and they copulate. So. But,
1: but there was there was some point in the article about he was asking where where does the single celled organism get the information yeah to right. to do those those things because it it doesn 't have differentiated organelles um, like multi celled organisms does and and yet it still does all of the same functions and that 's coming from somewhere and and I could be wrong, but the way that I inferred. Uh, was he was suggesting that that information comes up through the quantum level through the microtubule, and and that's that's where the information is coming from. Not that it's coming from some external force or interactions between microtubule or, or interactions between neurons firing and the synapses and the pathways that way, but the information actually bubbles up from inside of those neurons through the microtubules and. That's a connection right. into the quantum realm. That, that was my general takeaway from it. Is that right?
0: Okay. Yeah. No, that, that does. Let me, let me back up a little bit, though. Because so the question of what is information, where does it come from, and in a biological sense, there really was no good evidence for um, microtubules having any sort of uh, quantum activity um, until around 2009, the same time that, that workshop. Organized, and this is how I got involved Um, we had a material science guy in our office in Tokyo who was visiting Um, in Japan it's kind of unique they've put all of their national R&D labs in one city because as you know Tokyo is a really expensive place to live Uh, my rent was thousands of dollars a month now the government was paying that so that was nice of them Um, but with Japanese scientists and the the real estate bubble of the 90s, they realized they had to put all their their R&D in one city. So the the National Institute of Material Sciences is in Scuba, Japan. There's 110 other national institutes around it within a 10-mile radius. And in 2004, um, so we had a scientist in my office who was visiting up there funding another research in quantum dots. And this guy said, hey, we've got this Bengali kid here who's brilliant. He's doing something with microtubules. I don't understand it. And so my friend from my office uh, came to me and said, hey, you need to go up and see this kid, Anurban. So um, I, I need to talk a little bit about Anurban and how he came to NIMS and how he got connected with Hameroff. I think around 2004 or five, as a as a national institute, uh, NIMS put together a young investigator program. They had a panelist of five or six Nobel laureates, and they brought, I think, 30 or 40 young scientists from all over the world. They said, we're going to keep you all here for a year. You can do your thing, uh, you know, in various labs. At the end of the year, we're going to keep one of you, and we'll, we'll endow your lab to do whatever you, you know, deem is your big challenge of, of a technical challenge that, that's worthy of our investment. Anurban was the kid they kept at the end of that year, and they gave him a $15 million uh, seed grant to get started. Gosh, who wouldn't like that coming right out of a postdoc, right, Chelsea? <laughs> so uh,
2: you after this, because every single research project, I'm like, where did these people get the money? I would love to do that. That's amazing.
0: Yeah, so what he said was his background was in, in physics, and, and he's in a hard material science institute, but he said – I want to understand how biological materials process information. And what I need is I need to build a scanning tunneling microscope, which is basically like an old phonograph record needle just down at the nanoscale that I can drop down onto a single protein and measure the the signals that are coming off of it. So fine. They built that for him and he created a system that let him polymerize a single microtubule onto a slide. So the, th- the thing you have to know about microtubules is they're made up of little little balls like tennis balls. They're dimers, the A and the B, and they just form a spiral. So he built this system where he could polymerize a single microtubule and then drop four of these probes down on it. And then he could pump the micro- microtubule at different, different frequencies and measure the electrical properties, right? So the question is, are these biological materials insulating? Are they conducting? Are they superconducting? And the answer to quote uh, <laughs> a famous conspiracy theory is what's the frequency can? It depends on the frequency you pump them at. And it turns out that microtubules do in fact exert some of the properties that Hameroff and Penrose had first suggested that would allow for this whole orchestrated objective reduction process that they talk about in the discover article. So that's the reason why honor always shows up every year uh, as one of the keynote speakers, because he's really probably the only, and, and, and I would say best proof, although there are people um, at those conferences like max Tegmark who, who have actually gotten up and walked out and, uh, I wasn't there the year he said that, but somebody told me the year before he said some not nice things, which I'll just paraphrase nicely as this is, this is an utter fantasy. <laughs> he of been walked out of the talk, you know, he's just like, he couldn't believe it. So I think that, I think the, the author of that article quoted me as saying, you know, when you're trying to discover frontier sciences you have to drive out to the edge of what's known and the problem is you run the risk of ending up at the crazy next door neighbor of fringe science and so there there is a lot of risk in um, you know operating out at the fringes of, of the edge of what is known but at some point you have to say okay we have these tools that allow us to look out and see what's happening and and what was what was Galileo's famous last words, right? E pur si mueve. That was after he was condemned, you know, for, for his observations and called a heretic. He said, yeah, but the shit still moves. It's you can, <laughs> you can say what you want, but I've got the tools here to look at this. E pur si mueve. The shit still moves. It's still moving. So I think that's kind of where we are now with a lot of the, the woo-woo science. There There is some pretty clear evidence. Um, if you read some of the case studies that Annie Jacobson talks about um, from the early days of the defense sciences, um, and, and I can tell you just from civilians who I knew in connection with that program, there have been... Um, there have been operational uses of remote viewing that have have found things that nobody else could find. Uh, Annie Jacobson talks about the discovery of a uh, Russian bomber that crashed in Africa somewhere, and that was located uh, through <laughs> non-technical means.
1: Um, yeah, so... How, you know, you, you, you've mentioned woo several times, you know, Chelsea, you, you talked about it when we had our conversation a month or so ago. How do you guys define woo? Like, where is the line uh, when you're talking about the fringes of science? Where, Where does science end and woo start? Um, I'm sure that's got to be subjective um, for for a lot of people, especially when uh, you know our earlier discussion that you can have people even at the same university that are studying the same problem from different perspectives and don't even know what the other ones are doing or what they've discovered. Um, but but where where do you where do you draw the line on what's woo, and then what do you do with woo when you come across it? Do you just discard it? I, I'm not gonna investigate this you know like what 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 are your attitudes on woo
2: i'll go i'll go first my um my way of distinguishing woo from science is prove it where's your fact where's where have, have you done any trial and error have you done any scientific method at all so for me the book the secret is woo it's based on literal things we can actually quantify but they don't actually try to quantify any of it they're just trying to sell a book and get people to believe if Did they you want to read it yeah if they want to check in the mail it's going to come you know
1: yeah i've never read i've never read the secret <laughs> yeah. i've always heard it referred to but i've never read it
2: Dave and i could like take that part that book apart and each chapter provides some of the science behind why this thing sometimes works but I don't like the fact that someone's reading it, assuming that all they need to do is sit there and pray that they're going to get a big check in the mail and it's going to come or or that if they just, they can positively think their cancer away. To me, that's unethical. It, it, it's woo-woo. It's terrible. Now I could talk to someone who has cancer and share all the science behind what sorts of things actually have been proven to reduce their cancer, but it's not happy and believing they could have positive thoughts because what you're doing is you're now making that woman feel bad or that man feel bad because they're not thinking their cancer away enough you know so for me it all comes down to science that's the difference between woo-woo and not and often when we're talking about these pseudoscience or like um i would call it neoscience or science that's on the cusp of us discovering it and we're getting So I I believe, and, and Dave, I'd want to hear what you think, there's becoming a huge divide from the average population and their scientific literacy, even really smart people in business and tech and the academic community. We are discovering things at such a rate and a pace that no one can keep up. Even ourselves, we can't keep up with people at our own universities and being locked away in in journals and scholastic publishing that no one can access. And we're seeing that I'm seeing a divide between people who know all this woo-woo stuff and people who go publish little marketing books that sell for millions of dollars that aren't rooted in anything and so i would rather the scientist who actually knows the science behind the secret make that million dollars than some chick who like let me just give a self-help book so that's for me how i distinguish and i'm nervous that that divide is going to continue to increase and the average person's going to be like wow that's magical and really no it's science like they just didn't explain the science to you
0: yeah, exactly. I think Arthur Clark has the second law of 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 science, which is you know, uh, Clark's second law. I think says that any science that is insufficiently understood may as well be magic. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, Rayden actually used that as the title of one of his books called "Real Magic." It's like no real magic. You know, is <laughs> there there is something there. So um, we've dumped a little bit on on Randy here, and I want to bring up something that I started to try and get into uh, when my connection wasn't good at the beginning, and and that was uh, coming back to uh, both Jonathan Haidt's work in moral psychology, why the left needs the right, but I'm old enough. Um, and my experience as a Mormon growing up, my father was an MD, PhD scientist. We moved around a lot. We lived mostly outside of Utah. And I think at a very early age, I was probably a deacon when I was exposed to uh, Richard Pohl's article from Dialogue called What the Church Means to People Like Me. And in that article, he talked about the uh, distinction between two types of Mormons, the, the Leahona Mormon, and the Iron Rod Mormon, right? And, and these came to essentially, the Iron Rodder is very black and white. They're very conservative. And the Leahona is more of a faith-based, I don't know, let's suspend you know, our disbelief here and see where this thing takes us. Now, I funded a, uh, some scientists in Australia once I got into the social cultural modeling and prediction phase of things. They were doing things that, that you might be familiar with Chelsea called uh, agent-based models and they were specifically looking at strategies of fishermen uh, just you know how they share information and they said okay we can generally distinguish two types of resource utilization or strategies there's what we call the Cartesian approach where okay if it's Monday I fish in this bay so if x then y you know they they would be equivalent to the um, iron rotter then the other um, group of fishers they called were the stochastic, and they were the they were the adventure seekers. Who like I don't know, I've never fished over there. Let's go over there and see what happens in that bay. And the question they did um, in their simulations was, from an information sharing and a resource utilization perspective, which one of these strategies is more success successful? The one, the other or the two combined. And of course, Chelsea, you can probably predict the results, right? The combined use of those strategies was the optimal solution. And I think from an evolutionary perspective, our our access to information in our environment has always had evolutionary pressures. Um, on the one hand, the Cartesian stays home and, and tends the fires and has a very strict rigid sets of rules and they maintain the purity, and they keep us free from diseases. It's like, don't eat that. It fell on the ground. You must wash your hands, right? <clears throat> Very rule-based and rigid. They're the ones who prevent contagion and sickness and illness. On the other hand, the uh, the stochastics, they're, the, they're the, the adventurers who go, you know what? I wonder what's over that hill over there. Let's go find out. And so, I think as we venture into these new territories of what is woo and what is information, uh, the important thing is to keep open minds and to be, um, you know, not shout somebody down and just say, oh, that's bullshit, that's ridiculous. Obviously, I want to see the information, I want to see the data before I'm going to, you know, say whether something's woo or not, but uh, I've seen enough. Uh, weird things. In fact, that was my nickname when I was working in the Pentagon. They called me Dr. Weird Science. Um, I've seen enough fascinating and, and weird things, and I'm, I'm open to the creative potential of the universe uh, enough to say, well, you know, what what's woo right now may not be woo tomorrow.
2: So uh, how about this? What if, you know, you've talked so much about such fascinating topics. I think the question I'm most curious about, Dave, is what to you still is a mystery? What, what keeps you up at night? What is the thing that you're like, I wish we had an answer to this problem?
0: Yeah, you know, and I think that the question for that, especially as I look at my, um, you know, Mormon relatives and, and Mormon family, um, you know, how does that relate to what we may call spirituality or what once upon a time we called spirituality? Uh, that, that's probably my biggest challenge, you know, I mean, I've been, I've been wrestling not with just these questions, but <laughs> I just sent Glenn a picture of the church's latest book called Saints, The Standard of Truth, and it's, you know, it's their first volume of trying to inoculate the youth with uh, all of these ideas that 20 years ago, I felt like I was hiding a porno magazine if I was reading, you know, no man knows my history or, or any of, you know, take your pick of any of the other historians who've been excommunicated for writing things that are now in the church's standard of so-called truth. Right. Relating to history. Right. So, um, I think as, as Mormons progress and evolve, especially a lot of them are progressing and evolving. And, and uh, you know, I was on the ground in, in 2011 in Tokyo when John DeLynn first started doing the online survey of disaffected Mormons. Clearly, I've been wrestling with a lot of these existential questions as they relate to spirituality for probably 20 years. Um, I'm still in the pews. I play the organ in church on Sundays. But, you know, what it what really keeps me up is, is not so much the, the science that that's interesting. I think what keeps me up is, um, you know, worrying about, uh, how a lot of this, is, is, uh, how all of this cultural and social evolutionary pressure and Mormonism is just a fraction of, of all of the other social and cultural, uh, evolutionary pressure that I see going on, um, you know, with our kids, we took some of our work in social cultural modeling and prediction, and we tried to replicate some of Dick Nisbet's work in the geography of thought, which is essentially that, you know, Asians tend to be more holistic in their thinking and Westerners tend to be more reductionist. And we replicated that at seven universities, uh, in Asia with about 2000 subjects. And, his work, while it held up, we started seeing some really fascinating divides that looked to us to be generational. And that was uh, where people like Mark Prensky first started talking about the whole digital natives phenomenon. You know, so keep in mind, this was 2008, 2009, around the time the iPhone came out. So... I guess I've been thinking about, uh, and, and I've always been an early technology adopter. Uh, as you can clearly tell by now, I'm a geek. Um, I was on the internet probably before the internet was called the internet. We were, we were hacking into the Albuquerque public school systems, you know, <laughs> mainframe network and... Uh, Changing oh, your hey, grades? What? No. Yeah, that's actually one of the were you, jokes. Were you, were you playing
1: war games with Matthew Broderick?
0: Uh, that's actually one of the jokes that, you know, I tell people, I said, yes, I did hack into the Albuquerque public school system computer with a bunch of other friends of mine. Sadly, they didn't keep our grades on that computer. Otherwise we would have all gone to Harvard on scholarship
1: (laughs) because
0: we owned that. But the point in that is, you know, I've always had my thumb on new information tools. I think part of that, um, one of the links I sent, I think I sent you, was for P.W. Singer's book uh, called "Wired for War," uh, where he talks about technology as it's driving warfare. And uh, his latest book is called "Like War" on the weaponization of social media. So, so his two recent books are really important to understand where uh, information and cultural evolution are are leading us um, in terms of how we interact with others and and with our world, our broader world. So those are some of the things that keep me up at night. And, uh, you know, I usually spend the second and third hour of church listening to you guys on podcasts out in the car. (laughs) Why
2: do you still go?
0: You know, largely for family reasons. Trying to understand uh, who who or what is God is still a question. And and Stuart Kaufman is a complexity scientist who's done a lot of work in, uh, he's actually a physician. He's done work in uh, developing new drugs and understanding complexity theory as it relates to life sciences. And uh, his most recent book on redefining the sacred or something, I can't remember the exact title, you know explores a lot of these questions and says, "Who or what is God?" I'm okay with just looking at the amazing uh, creative potential of the universe and calling that God and and being open to <clears throat> other people's spiritual experiences uh, and and understanding that we all come from different places and different backgrounds and respecting that uh, and and trying to seek out. Empathy for other people, I think that's uh that's the best we can hope to do.
1: What what keeps you up at night, Chelsea? What are your hard questions?
2: Uh that I won't be able to have the tools or the methodology to prove the things that I know.
1: <laughs> so so the things that you know will just stay in the woo. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and our just, hard just stay in my brain.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> so I think no,
0: that's... that's really a fascinating problem, Chelsea. I mean i I was trained growing up as both a musician and a scientist. My mom's family were all members of the Tabernacle Choir. I play the violin and the viola, and like I said, I play the organ in church on Sundays. And, and so, two very different parts of my brain, but a lot of the same gestalt ways of seeing the world. Um, Lee mentions in the book that the word empathy comes from the German Einfühl, which means to get inside of something. And that was originally understood to be how are you fully immersed in nature or fully immersed in a body of art. And, and that's been, been my life. I mean, when I, was, when I was looking at the DNA sequence data, I saw the pattern before I had the mathematics to say it's not random, and it took me nine—it it took me nine years, <laughs> nine years to do a PhD. The Air Force had given me, you know, three and a half years in residence, and then the rest of that they moved me on to my next assignment, and I had to, you know, essentially every couple of months travel down to Cincinnati and and struggle with my committee. But this pattern I saw, I was using a skill set that was a non-mathematical skill set. It was the pattern matching, right? It was that, exactly what Lieberman talks about in the social book. It, it's using those, those skill sets to grab something at a gestalt from an abstract and go, no, this, this is too weird, I, I see this pattern. And uh, you know, I think the the skeptics of the world would say, "Oh, well, we're just really good at 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 making meaning where there is no meaning." You know, this is just a random thing. Right. And that's that's our biggest challenge. Right. In in the woo, you know, is to say, go ahead.
2: And just to follow up with that, I mean. I read, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 Hours, and I was thinking about that the other day. And as an anthropologist, it's different than a chemist. It's different than, and here's the thing, when I go to TED retreats, no one calls me a scientist. No one thinks that what I do is real science, you know? So I'm already kind of on the fringes. But why my field is different, I feel like, is it's studying humans. It's studying human interaction. It's studying the the, the physiological output of a human social interaction. And that's something I do every single day, all day long. So I have way more than 10,000 hours because I don't just live my life. Every time I'm at church, every time I'm at work, every time I'm in a social setting, I'm analyzing. I'm analyzing status. I'm analyzing social signals. I'm analyzing costly signals. I'm predicting behavior. I'm responding to that analysis. And the only difference between what you do every day too, is that I'm doing all of that like hyper-consciously. And I'm like remembering what I learned and remembering big macro patterns I see in one culture or across multiple cultures. And, you know, I know that that has given me a significant amount of sophisticated, social, mathematic, rapid processing power. I don't know how to prove that and I don't necessarily have the tools to do that or the skills to do that. Clearly, I'm more into the social part of the social science. Yeah, I think it just traps me a little bit. I think it makes me a better anthropologist. I can literally go in the field and within five days be welcomed into someone's home, be welcomed into spiritual spirit possession rituals that no Obruni, no just white person is just allowed to walk off the street and go. I'm able to master that social interaction but that's not considered a hard skill or a hard methodological trait. And that's what anthropology is. We go into the field and we literally, just like the the definition of empathy, we literally put ourselves into a completely new context into someone's life. We shit in the same toilets. And let me tell you the holes that I have had to go in. We, We drink the same water. We get the, you know, the, we make the same meals. You hand wash the clothes in the pond. Like you put yourself into every physical and sensorial interaction that this peop- that these people are experiencing in order to better understand some of these sensory patterns that we just can't measure or consciously think about yet. And we just don't have the methodology to prove to anyone in the world that what I'm doing, I think, is science. <laughs> so yeah. that's kind of well, what
0: I, I think we've just barely scratched the surface with some of the simple dichotomies even that we want to try and make, you know, like left-handed versus right-handed, conservative versus, you know, liberal, it's, it's just the tip of the iceberg. When we're talking about the genomic variation that goes on, so if you send me your 23andMe or you send me your ancestry file, there's a lot of actually really useful information in some of the variability in different genes that we all have. So one, one great example is if you take 100 people, you put them in a room, you give them all the same dose of caffeine, and then you send them to the bathroom every 10 minutes and measure the metabolites of the caffeine, you plot a bimodal curve. There's people who excrete rapidly and there's people who don't excrete rapidly. And that comes down to a single point mutation in one of those drugs that clears the caffeine and there's thousands of other examples just like that, that the whole world of precision medicine is tr- trying to struggle with. And that's one of the reasons why the, the dirty secret I mentioned of the drug industry not even be able, being able to af- effectively treat more than about 30 percent of people who actually take any given drug. It's because they don't understand the genetic variability of the populations that are taking their drugs do they have enough Asians in their test populations? Do Asians excrete differently than Westerners? And Absolutely. Just
2: to follow up with that, Dave, and I'll just interrupt really quickly, they're also, it's so expensive in the U.S., so they're starting to take drug trials all over the world to developing nations because they can do cheaper drug trials. And there's a ton of ethical problems with that, as well as some of these bio uh, neurobiological problems.
0: Yeah. Look at the oxytocin receptor in the septal region. That's going to turn out to be really important. <laughs> we we already know that variability in the in the oxytocin receptor. Uh, there's a couple of points of variability that I can look at from your 23andMe sequence and can tell what the likelihood of of. Uh, different personality traits are just from that single point of mutation in that, that one gene. So these
1: are all, we could put pit you against Chelsea. You have Chelsea in the bar determining what occupation everybody is. We could, <laughs> we could have you looking at the, the the genome and you know, what are the personality types? So we could turn this into a whole show. Yeah, there you go. I, I've well, been it, thinking of a, of a metaphor really, um, almost the entire time we started talking about the different disciplines that are approaching reality, the physical world, whatever you want to call it. And you know, there's that, that classic example of the the blind men feeling the, the elephant and you know, that they're all in different places feeling the tusks or the trunk or the ears. And they all think it's something different. Right. I, and I, I, <laughs> I think if if they're studying the elephant and then they start going deeper into the elephant's biology, where they get to the level of cellular investigation or they get to the level of atomic investigation, they go deeper and they get to that quantum realm, eventually what they find, regardless of where they're starting from in the elephant, they're going to get to this like fundamental energy that is the fabric, the building blocks of everything that's made and what's interesting to me with this 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 image is that you can do the same thing for each of the explorers each each person that's examining a different location on that elephant if you go deep within them to their cellular level atomic level ultimately they are also that same stuff that they're looking at in the whatever section of the elephant they are and so it's like that that yeah and glenn quantum energy and, glenn, I, I, quantum I, energy and
2: I the apparatus yeah i would not
0: yeah. tell you the most important part glenn yeah and that is the the underlying structure of the vibrations in the microtubules is a three pattern there's a oh, right triplet, yeah there's a triplet of triplet resonance in there and in fact when honor bond told me that I immediately thought of you because you've talked <laughs> about three patterns yeah. so much. But in yeah. fact, w- he, he does talk about a resonance chain that extends in the vibration of these networks all the way from the subatomic scale. And then when you measure in single microtubules, and then you measure in a single neuron, and yeah. then you measure in a cortical column, and then you measure in the whole brain, he's actually building whole brain models uh, in his lab in Japan that are that are measuring the this orchestra if you will yeah, of, of right. vibrations that's happening and and like i said when we measure things uh, in the, at the social scale my gut feeling is the physical structure of the networks looks the same the math mathematics looks the same I see one over F dynamics. I see nonlinear dynamics. I see the same equations going on. It looks to me like it's, it's just an ex- it's turtles all the way down. You know, yeah. it's, it's all fractal. So,
1: <clears throat> yeah. And, 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 and so I guess for, for me the things that, like my hard questions that keep me awake at night is, is thinking about that kind of stuff. And then like, where do I fit in? You know, if it, if it like the basic level, it's all essentially the same stuff. And it is this incredibly complex symphony of vibrations at different levels of <laughs> it, just, mm-hmm. it starts sounding so weird, but it, but it makes me feel like the, the things that I'm worried about, like maybe I'm not the best dad in the world, or maybe I'm not the most best husband in the world or things like that. It, it kind of makes me relax a little bit on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I don't know I, if I that's a go, good uh, thing or a bad thing because I don't want it to make me like neglectful and think, you know, so nihilistic that ah nothing really matters because then I think, well, there's, there's gotta be some, some contribution, even if it's this little teeny tiny, small stitch in a fabric that extends into infinity and, you know, but it's this unique pattern that is me right now in this time and you and yours and that's got to be enough. Uh, but, but not enough to like worry so much about, I don't So it's, it's, it's kind of taken me more into that, like spiritual, like being able to appreciate things that I didn't as much when I was more feeling more nihilistic about things that nothing really made a difference. Yeah,
0: I, I think one of the one yeah. of the conclusions that we, we we drew from the survey of disaffected Mormons was, so where do people go after Mormonism? And yeah. predominantly, you know, you get the people who just say, well, if this isn't true, then nothing else is. And they go, you know, straight over the cliff into nihilism or or, you know, they, they go they into get ordinary, a lot of tattoos. They get a lot of tattoos. They yeah. Booze. Yeah. yeah. I don't marijuana. know. marijuana. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to give a shout out to two other um, Mormons, I think, who have trod this field. Um, one a progressive Mormon, and that's Lincoln Cannon, who's the founder of the um, the Mormon Transhumanist Association. I think, as uh, as I've spoken to non Mormons in in a lot of these edge of science fields, and a lot of them are in the, you know, what people call the singularity, which is where eventually we will merge with our machines and our technology as we extend our sensorial capabilities. Lincoln has really laid the groundwork for how to approach these from a spiritual perspective that has had a very strong drawing power beyond the reaches of Mormonism. So there are some people like, for instance, Julio Prisco, um, Ben Gertzel. Uh, these are all people who I've, I've known through my affiliations on the air force side of things and trying to, f- to fund some of this research and they're members of the MTA. I was like, you're not a Mormon. And they're like, yeah, but we like the way these guys think they, they have a very progressive approach mm-hmm. to being open to new tools and new technology. Um, I think that's arguable given our, our current, uh, <laughs> state of, of, uh, where, uh, rusty's going with a lot of this and then the other end is uh brian johnson who was one of the founders of paypal uh he's now an ex-mormon but you know he used an existential crisis when he made his millions from the sale of of um one of the companies affiliated actually with paypal and and he is now investing in hard problems so chelsea if you need some money go ask brian johnson um he's He's created a number of of companies that are looking to advance uh the, the one in particular I'm thinking of is called kernel k e r n e l which is like the heart of a operating system on your computer kernel not like a corn kernel or a, or an air force kernel hmm. but but what where kernel is going is trying to understand the operating system of the brain and to build interfaces uh Elon Musk is doing the same thing with his neural lace. There's a lot of people trying to build the technology, um, you know, to reverse engineer the brain. I think a lot of the approaches that people are using for brain building are fundamentally wrong because they're trying to apply a a backwards engineering approach and say, well, this is how our computers work. So we've got to try and, you know, understand the brain the same way.
2: I completely second that. And I just recommend as you guys finish this book, Social, one question I want to ask in the next podcast where we're talking is based on that, you know, we we tend to do everything uh, written or digitized or think that our brains are like a computer because that's the only thing we've been able to make. But our brains are the most sophisticated computer on the face of the planet that we can barely, barely understand all of its workings, right? So I think it's a terrible model. And my question for you is, as we begin to realize how social selection worked and as human modern Homo sapiens evolved and how important the social dynamic is for success, in e- even including that we are spending our time, energy and resources on, on ideas and not having 15 children nowadays, right? So reproduction and like getting our genes out there has been kind of replicated almost you know i don't agree completely with this theory but into memes and into ideas and like where where i am going to live forever or where i'm going to actually have an effect on this planet or this world is if my ideas last long after i'm dead and so people are investing more in that then i'm going to have 15 children so that my genes invest long after i was I'm dead.
0: was that why president nelson Asked the sisters to go on a social media fast for 15 days. Was he hoping to make more babies and less memes?
2: (laughs) That's a good point. Anyway, I want you guys to think about that as (laughs) social. Okay, so the best model for the brain is not a computer. So what is it? And how does seeing ourselves as inherently social first change the way that we create metaphors for our brains and bodies and interactions?
0: Yeah, Yep. That sounds like a that sounds like a good uh, place to pick up. I'm I'm partway through and I would say again coming back to where I am in chapter 7 that septal nucleus, that part at the center of the brain where where Lieberman is bringing together these two systems for our mirror neurons which is, you know, how we see and make sense of what other people are physically doing. So what you're talking about Chelsea with your ability to understand people physically you 're very tuned into the integration of reading other people 's body language and their micro gestures and how that integrates you know with the sense making part of our brain that gets to the how and the why that's that 's where I think the uh, the 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 merging of those comes together and and the realization that the the social part of our world is is really um the social and the spiritual and the emotional they all they all just kind of play together
1: well dave are you, are you available on uh december 2nd That's a couple sundays away that's when chelsea and i are going to do the the uh discussion about social uh, yeah.
0: I should, yeah. I should have it finished by then.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Yeah. Love for you to join us on that. That'd be great. All right, cool. Well, thanks you guys for, for the conversation today. I, I'm going to have to listen back to it like three or four times before I can even know what questions I have to start understanding it. Yeah.
0: Well, I think it was, a, I think it was a good start and whether any or, or none of it or all of it ends up uh, in recording, I think we, we got a little bit on the geeky side or I got a, a lot geeky. Um, but you know, I, I think we've, we've raised some of the themes that, uh, that I think we can run with.
1: Yeah. And, and the, the, the nice thing to me, because it's not like a scientific or an academic environment, I can just throw it out there and just let it make, you know, just, just this, Drop this big, uh, whatever shape it is, rock in the water and let it ripple. And listeners can have it bounce up against them, and they can make whatever meaning they want to with it. And uh, awesome, yeah.
2: And I think that we should give ourselves some credit in the sense that I believe that why we're interested in these in betweens, the ephemeral, you know, ephemeral stuff, yeah, is because we were raised Mormon. And from an early childhood, we were, at, we were asked to look for the unseen. Mm-hmm. I remember praying and being afraid that I'd be so confident, like Joseph Smith, when, when Moroni came to him in his bed, mm-hmm. that like, he would sh- appear in my room. I, I remember like looking behind me. I was that faithful. And, and, and now I'm atheist and all that stuff. But the way I look at, back at that is for all of those three decades, I was developing a part of my brain to see the unseen. And had we not been raised in this culture, we might not have that ability actually it 's during our early development. Yeah, that's and that 's true think that it would allow us like the Mormon transhumanist society I think they 're better at that kind of thinking than a scientist that never was trained, you know, from youth because that part of their brain, just like multi-language speakers have more complex language uses in their brain when they age. I believe we were encultured to develop that part of our brain really significantly. And that's why we care about these subjects.
0: That's right. You you believed what a midi-chlorian was and you actually believed that there was a force. And so you developed that, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thank you, guys. Talk Thanks to you later. You guys. All right. Bye. Bye.
1: All right, so what did you think of this wooey, wooey episode? Comment on the website or shoot us an email at infantsonthrones at gmail.com, like Dave did. And let's play together. Let's play with these ideas more. Playing with ideas is fun, right? So before I wrap up today's episode, let me talk a little bit about what's going on with Patreon. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago. That I had this goal for the podcast to get over 300 patrons by the end of 2018 and if we do that we'll record another like Disney type CD type thing great now as of today we're sitting at 245 patrons so 300 is certainly within range and it's great but here's the thing. Look, we average about five to 6,000 downloads per episode. I mean, some of them get over 10,000 downloads within the first week. So I know that there are people out there who are listening to this content, who enjoy this content, but for whatever reason, you haven't joined Patreon to help support the content. And maybe... You don't know how much time or care goes into episodes like this. (laughs) Or maybe it doesn't matter. There could be a lot of different reasons. But let me try to explain this to you without sounding too douchey, okay? So this episode that you just listened to is what? It's a little over two hours long. So how long do you think it took me to make it? Now, there was the time that we recorded it. So about two hours, right? And then there was the time that I went back and listened to it twice, actually. The time I took finding clips to insert into it. The time it took to put that intro together, which is only about two or three minutes long, but takes about 30 minutes to an hour. So all in all, this probably has taken me six to seven hours. That's a conservative estimate to create this episode. And now when I publish it on Patreon... After taking out the expenses like the taxes and the hosting costs and all of that stuff and then splitting up the donations with the other infants, which we do based on participation. I'll probably pocket about $100 for this six or seven hours of my time. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining about that. I don't do this for the money. I never have. But you know what? I'd like to, I mean, sorta. So if you were willing to help me out a bit more, you know, that would be kind of awesome. Now, for those of you who are wondering how we split the money between all of the infants, like I said, it's based on participation shares. I won't get into all of the details on it, but it's it's divided up monthly, basically, because that's how Patreon pays us, is, is based on the monthly episodes that are released, and it's a different amount every month. So there are shares for being a panelist for the infants. There's uh, shares for being a director. If you pick the topic, you schedule it, you lead the discussion, you get the panel together, all of that extra work, you get a share for that. If you're a producer, if you're going through and you're listening back to the episode, so you're spending that time, you're polishing it up, you're editing, you're being playful with it, and you're publishing it so that it gets out to you good listeners to hear and enjoy, now that's an additional participation share so at the end of it each month we see who's done what what money came in we split it up based on the percentage after expenses have been paid so i'm asking you now again please if you haven't joined patreon yet please do but of course only if you can afford it and of course only if this content is really something that is valuable to you now if you're fine with only two or maybe three episodes a month Don't worry about it. But if you want more content, and honestly, I think some of the recent Patreon-only content has been pretty damn good, like the Jeremy Goff smackdowns. I've started doing some deep dives into Alan Watts' material. There are some unpublished episodes, panel discussions that haven't been published yet on Patreon only, but will be rather soon. So it's good stuff on Patreon. And if that's what you want, if you want more content than two or three episodes a month, then I'm going to ask you to put your money where your ears are. And then I'll keep putting my mouth where you're... Okay, never mind. Now, I've been thinking about making this move for a while, probably since the spring. But there was kind of a recent straw that hit my camel right in the back. And I'm going to share that with you right now. Don't you love it when I read you iTunes reviews. I mean, we ask for iTunes reviews at the end of every episode, right? So why should we be, or I'm saying we, me, why should I be upset by iTunes reviews? I'm asking for them, right? So here's a two-star iTunes review that was left on November 17th, 2018 from Paul M. in Katy, Texas. And Paul titled his review, Tired, Stale, and No Longer Funny. It's a three-pattern. Thanks, Paul. I got it. He says, There was a time I enjoyed IoT, but they have gone downhill ever since they started taking donations. I think it became more of a job instead of a fun hobby ever since. Gone are the thought-provoking smackdowns. Instead, they spend their time putting down John DeLynn, Sam Young, and Bill Reel. Really? You didn't hear the most recent episode I did with Bill Real? Come on, Paul M. Even their recent general conference spoof, usually their best episodes, was mediocre at best. My favorite infants are John Hamer, brother Jake, and Heather, but they rarely participate anymore. Instead, we have angry Matt, expert on all things, and edit happy, he's not funny, Glenn. John Larson knew when it was time to move on, IOT should do so as well. (laughs) Okay. Oh, Paul. So, like, look, what? What do you guys expect me to do when I read something like that? Right? You know? (laughs) So, Paul, this goes out to you and any and all of the other Pauls out there like you. Why is it that I have to move on just because you don't like what this podcast is anymore? I mean, really? How entitled do you have to be to think something like that, let alone to take the time to go put a shame mark on a podcast that you at least used to enjoy? I mean, if you don't enjoy it anymore, no problem. You don't have to listen. You can move on. But it's really annoying and discouraging to hear stuff like this. But, okay, straw, camel's back. You're right. The time has come for a change. Now, contrary to what you're saying, you think that it's become more of a job where I earn a hundred dollars for every six or seven hours of my time. No, that's not the case at all. I still enjoy making these. I still have things that I want to say. I still have fun doing it. There are people who think that I'm funny, whether you do or not, doesn't matter. That's fine if you don't think that I'm funny. But I want to say the things that I want to say to people who want to hear them, to people who appreciate what we're saying. And I've really been enjoying the comments that are being made on Patreon and the Patreon supporters who have been joining us for live recordings and we get to interact in person. That's the type of activity that I want to shift my focus towards. Now, as for the other infants, I don't know. What can I say about the other infants? Matt and Tom, they're still pretty active. I mean, you hear from them a lot. Matt's going to be working on a new podcast called What We Know, and that's going to focus more on his experience with uh, criminal activity and victimology and that sort of thing. Tom and I are helping him put that together, but Matt also wants to create some Patreon-only content for Infants on Thrones with he and his wife, Kristen. So you're going to keep hearing from Matt. You're going to keep hearing from Tom pretty regularly. What about Jake and Randy and Bob? You know, they still jump on from time to time. But they're living their lives, you know? Heather, she's still interested. There were so many comments in the recent listener survey, which thank you for those of you who filled out the listener survey. Probably the most common comment was there was, I miss Heather. Where's Heather? I mean, Heather's around. She's still interested. I talked with her, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. I often invite her to our Sunday recordings, but she just doesn't have a lot of time and maybe doesn't have a lot of interest in the topics that we're choosing. And she's kind of feeling out of the loop on the Mormon and ex-Mormon world and being pretty okay with that. So, you know, that's what's going on with Heather. Uh, John Hamer, he's busy doing his thing with the community of Christ. He gives weekly lectures that are available on Facebook. So if you want more John Hamer, Check out the Community of Christ Toronto Congregation Facebook group. I mean, John and I, we're going to be recording something in a couple of weeks. So, you know, none of these people are out of Infants on Thrones. Scott... He's paramotoring a lot, and he's fixing up old boats, and he's loving his life outside of Mormonism a lot. A lot. (laughs) I mean, the last thing Scott wants to do is talk about Mormonism. But again, no one has officially retired or quit the podcast or been kicked out or anything like that. You'll probably hear from each of these other infants more in the future. It's just life happening. We've been doing this for six years. But this is where we are now. And this is what we are now. And if you'd like to support us, what we are now, and to see and influence the direction that we're going, please join Patreon. And I have to say, in addition to this, I have been absolutely loving the diversity in these recent listener essays. Now, if you haven't voted for any of these essays yet, and there's not as big of a turnout this time as there was when we did the first listener essay contest last February, it's kind of dropped off. The, the voting has dropped off, not the listener essays. I mean, there's probably gonna be, I don't know, 15 or 20 of them this time. There's a lot to keep coming in. I love it, I love it. But remember, you can vote for every single one of these essays you don't have to pick just one and more importantly you can give feedback to the authors and possibly by giving that feedback and if you choose to include your email address or not you could form new connections and friendships that way if you want to it's an opportunity that's right there but there is so much talent so much heart so many unique perspectives among you this listening audience i i just i feel so proud to be able to have reached all of you like this and i i barely have a comprehension of all of you that are out there so when i do get to see who some of you are and hear from some of you it, it it's it's amazing it's amazing it's it's sort of a modern miracle really and i love being able to publish listener-generated content. Most of these essays just absolutely blow me away. Simple stories of true, genuine experience and questions and struggles and introspection and bravery and vulnerability, I I just love it. So I hope that those contributions with listener essays will continue as well. I, I think it's so valuable and important for many voices to be part of this thing called Infants on Thrones that honestly all of us are creating together. It's not just me and my six to seven hours with this episode, which is now getting closer to eight after that long spiel about Patreon. (laughs) But anyway, that's what we're doing. That's where we're going to go starting in January 2019. You're going to see a significant decrease in the number of episodes that come out just generally to the public, probably one every two weeks. Whereas on Patreon, there'll be anywhere from one to two per week. Because it's really nice. I love being able to... So here's one of the things that I've started doing on Patreon, is there's a, there's a community page where people can post links and say, I think you should smack down this. You should look at this video. You should look at this article. And I can go through those without having to assemble a panel together. I know it's not as great when you don't have multiple voices on the panel, but I can knock these things out pretty quickly and you know scratch that itch that you guys want to hear what's a smackdown on this and get a couple of people together and we can do it and uh, open up the Sunday live recordings you guys can jump in and be part of a panel discussion I don't know it's, it's been really nice and I'd like to put more focus on building that Patreon community so that's what we're going to be doing in 2019 and as always thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones please come and support us on Patreon And now, how about a listener-generated outro? And I'd love to get more of those, by the way. So if you haven't created an outro and you'd like to, do it. Send it to us. Email it to us. I'll use it. Kind of just like this. This is Trent dwelling in the land of Mordor between two temples. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the Quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on thrones.